Hello, and welcome back to Designing for Movement, the UX for Mobility podcast. I'm Dr. Julian Brinkley, your host. In today's world, the way people get around is changing rapidly. From the emergence of ride-sharing and electric vehicles to autonomous vehicles and spacecraft, new technologies are fundamentally changing the way we move around our cities and beyond. I believe to understand existing mobility technologies, as well as to imagine what comes next, we must think beyond our understanding of mobility as purely getting from point A to point B, and must instead think about the experience of mobility itself. In this podcast, we will explore the design of mobility technologies with an emphasis on understanding how best to support the human user. We'll be talking to designers, researchers, engineers, and experts in the field about how they design compelling, accessible, and engaging experiences at some of the world's leading mobility companies. So whether you're an industry professional, an educator, or just someone with a passion for mobility, design, UX, and technology, this podcast is for you. Let's get into it. So welcome to Designing for Movement, the UX for Mobility podcast. Joining us today is Dr. Thomas Veringer-Kunt, Director of Advanced User and Product Research at Lotus Tech Innovation Center. Thomas has experience with user research in the automotive industry and has an academic background in both psychology and engineering. Welcome, Thomas, and thank you for joining us. I really appreciate you being here today. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you, Julian. It's great to be on your podcast. So how are you doing? I am doing awesome. It's a nice day today. So, and I have coffee. So, that always makes me happy. So, let's jump right into it. I was looking through your background, and you really had a really interesting career in this domain. So, it's really a privilege and a pleasure to have an opportunity to kind of dive into that. What attracted you to your current role at uh, Lotus Tech Innovation Center? Yeah. So, I started in the company here or in the predecessor of this company four years ago. But then we were called Chile. I was a Chile Auto Technical, so working for a variety of brands inside the Chile group. And as you might know, and maybe your listeners also might know, uh, Chile has acquired a Lotus, and uh, I think it was in 2017, or not the whole, but uh, like a majority of the company, to develop it a bit more forward towards more comfort cars, not only the super SUVs. And so around one and a half years ago, made a, a step, so to speak, from uh, working for various brands inside the Chile group, only focusing on a Lotus brand. And then a Lotus Technology Group was founded in, in China. And now we are in a big group with uh, Chinese colleagues, uh, British colleagues, and the Innovation Center here in Germany. So it was quite of an involvement from the Chile group to now the Lotus Technology Group. And uh, just so our listeners are aware, I have a little bit of visibility on this, but you'll probably correct me where I'm wrong. What are some of the brands of the uh, Geely Group? Is it, Volvo was one of those brands, correct? Is that, is that accurate? Exactly. So in Europe and the US, you might be aware, of course, of Volvo, Polestar, then Lotus. Of course, Geely is a brand on its own, big, super big brand in China. And yeah, so there are a variety of big OEMs under the Chile umbrella. Smart as well. So the new Smart is also manufactured by Chile, at least. Interesting. So can you tell us a little bit about the uh, Tech Innovation Center specifically and, you know, maybe some of the work that you all are doing to the degree that you're able to speak about it, obviously? Yeah, sure. So yeah, when I started here at this company, so my goal was to ramp up an, an HMI UX team. So we really started from, from scratch. There were only a bunch of people, handful of people in the beginning. And 
Chile was clever enough to uh, collect uh, all the knowledge which is available here in uh, German automotive industry under this umbrella here of this technology center. And HMI UX is one part of it, but only rather small part. So the technology center covers all of the engineering work and development work which is needed for car development. And then the manufacturing actually is not done here. It's done abroad in China. But we are, let's say, at the forefront doing some pre-development and also serious development in cooperation with also the colleagues in Hethel and Coventry and now for the Lotus brand. So basically all the research and development activities that are needed to develop vehicle are covered here. And yeah, as I said, HMI UX is one part of it. The team now has grown to some bit more than 10 people. I, as you introduced me, now I'm focusing more on the advanced and user research topics because now the serious development um, HMI topics are covered by one of my colleagues now. So I can focus on the more advanced and interesting stuff. Interesting. So, you know, that all really piques my interest. So a lot of the work that we do, just a little bit of background on some of the work that we do in my lab, which I, I know our listeners are probably familiar with to a degree. A lot of the work that we do here in the States at the university that I work for and in my design and research of in-vehicle experiences lab, it's focused on understanding user needs. And a lot of that basically ends up leading to the development of a series of uh, HMI-related prototypes. So we do a lot of HMI prototyping, a lot of HMI design work, and a lot of things kind of in that same domain. So I want to get into some of the stuff that you're uh, working on now, but just in terms of what you were doing previously with some of the HMI work that you were doing. Can you speak a little bit about what you were doing with respect to that? Like what type of vehicles you were developing HMIs for, maybe what type of technologies you were using? I know some manufacturers right now are using QT, some are using HTML5, some are using Unreal, like Rivian. You know, can you speak to a little bit of that? Yeah, so here we are doing mostly prototyping and then the actual development part is done by an engineering center. So I can talk about the pre-development tools and tool chain that we use. So basically we use the common tools like Sketch, Figma, Protopie, but also in a lab uh, we work with Unreal and stuff like that for prototyping. And then in the whole industry and also inside the Chile group, there are two main different approaches. So some target fully to implement off-the-shelf systems like Android Auto or CarPlay and stuff like that. And other brands are more focusing on developing their own unique HMI. For us here, for pre-development purposes, that's not that big much of a difference. So we work with either approaches. And as I said, mostly focusing on the prototyping aspect and, of course, starting very early in the design phase uh, to make sure that we really can incorporate end user needs and requirements. So that's, for me personally, also something really important to start very early, really quick and dirty prototyping and testing and iteration, because you have to do this then as early as possible using prototypes that you can quickly also then manipulate and change and adapt based on the user's feedback. So this is really, for me, a crucial part of the development process. So both in terms of the work that you were doing with HMI design, development, and prototyping, as well as the work that you're doing currently, 
One of the big things that I try to understand in terms of the work that we do is really, you know, what are some of the processes and techniques that we can use to really try to understand the perspectives of the end user, right? You know, how can we really get a deep understanding of what those needs are, you know, what their preferences are, and then how do we take that information and then design for the user? So how crucial do you think it is for automobile user research just broadly to truly understand and empathize with the perspectives and needs of users? How critical is that, do you think? I think it's absolutely critical because the attitude towards vehicles and cars itself is changing a lot. If you also think of Gen Z or younger generations, like they do not that much focus anymore on like having the car, but for them, it's more a tool to get from A to B. Car sharing is more accepted in younger generations and things like that. And the first thing they do when entering the car is plugging their phone to the in-car system or to CarPlay or Android Auto. So they actually use an external off-board device because it just gives them the freedom and the same interface they are used to and all the features they are used to. And if car manufacturers want to catch up with that, they have focus on the needs of those users and design for their needs. Otherwise, they will not be able to keep up with their expectations. So absolutely crucial to answer your question. So what are some of the techniques? Obviously, there are a lot of different ways that you can go about trying to really understand your user, right? A lot of different methods in terms of your background, psychology and engineering background. You know, there are a plethora of methods that you can use to really try to understand a user needs. Can you talk a little bit about some of the techniques that you all, some of the methods that you all currently use to really try to understand users and what that looks like? Yeah, so in the beginning, we definitely start with qualitative methods like, you know, customer empathy maps, focus group discussions, and things like that. And from that, then we develop first ideas about the user personas, which desires and needs to the end customers actually have. So this is very qualitative. And then from that, we try to focus on the most important features to cover those needs. Then we would build some prototypes and then go into the lab and do some more quantitative research. So we have the prototypes and click dummies of the interface and the features that we want to bring in. Then we can test this and this is then also a mixture of quantitative data. And then it's a stepwise approach. Of course, we also have to then to negotiate with the development teams whether or not certain requirements are feasible or how doable in a certain time frame and cost-wise and things like that. So we start with qualitative and more quantitative, like usability-related testing to, to define the requirements as close as possible to the end user needs. Well, that's really interesting. So when you are doing focus groups and some of this type of qualitative work, what are some of your approaches? Like what type of people do you normally look for to basically participate in those types of activities? Because I could imagine that depending on who you are bringing in, you know, let's say you decided to bring in older adults, so people 65 and above, you know, I can imagine that what you would find from bringing in, you know, people in that demographic might be quite a bit different from, you know, what you described a moment ago about what you might uh, learn if you bring in people who are Gen Z or people who are, you know, 19 to 25, 
you know, there might be some differences. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you normally decide on a participant recruitment strategy, who to bring in and what that looks like? Yeah, so for that, we work with external agencies. Of course, the marketing team has some ideas about target groups for certain vehicle lines. They also differ between Europe and China and the US, of course. Or in China, the age group buying premium cars is definitely younger, for example, than in Europe. But yeah, we defined in a certain screener together with the marketing team, age group, household income, other activities people would do, which cars they have driven before. And this is then given to an external agency and then they recruit participants for us. Or maybe even they also do some external research because so the research activity itself and then hand back the results to us because the team here is rather small. So we cannot contact like big focus groups with hundreds of people. This is usually then supported by external agencies. But absolutely, it makes a huge difference if you design for age group 65 or 25, of course. So have you all done to the degree that you're able to talk about this, obviously, because I know here in the United States, one of the big things that is being considered right now is really how do we design for the older adult population, right? You know, generally the population in the United States is getting much older. So people are living longer. People are living with a greater variety of disabilities. So we do have many uh, older drivers. On the other hand, many of these older drivers, 65 and above, also have typically significant amount of disposable income. So these are oftentimes viewed as ideal customers for many of these luxury brands that we have here in the United States. So in terms of looking at kind of those dynamics, are older adults a group that you generally kind of design for, that you do dedicated research that is focused on their specific needs, or in the markets that Lotus is currently working in, that's not really necessarily a big consideration. Uh, right now, I would say it's not that much of a consideration. The, the target group is more like the, in Europe, I would say 45 plus, maybe self-employed industry People are not that much the retired folks who might suffer from certain disabilities. So designing for disabilities is not really something we focus on that much, to be honest. Okay. That's a very honest answer, and I appreciate that. A lot of the work we do in my lab, specifically here in the Drive Lab, is focus on accessibility, older adults. You know, that's not the only area that we focus on, but it is a pretty significant consideration. So you mentioned a, a moment ago, you were talking about Apple CarPlay, Android Auto, you know, what these Gen Z users are basically doing when they actually get into vehicles and what that looks like. How much of an impact has the evolution of technologies like Android Auto and Apple CarPlay had on basically what you all are doing in your direction. And in some of the other conversations that we've had with automotive manufacturers, GM, for instance, from my understanding, is basically trying to develop their own HMI and their own, you know, competitor to Android Auto and uh, CarPlay, from what I understand from uh, publicly available uh, reports. So what type of impact really do CarPlay and Android Auto have on what you all are doing? Like, does it inform anything that you're doing or? Yes, of course, it sets expectations and it sets kind of a benchmark. And we cannot go without any phone mirroring option. 
inside the HMI. So either you build it in, like also now Volvo is doing, or you offer at least an option for the users to mirror their phones uh, if they like to and use alternatives to the inbuilt HMI systems. So I think if you cover a big variety of different user groups, you cannot just uh, focus on one solution. There are some who might prefer in-car or in-built HMIs for whatever reason. For example, quite often it's not possible to show Google Maps if you have Android or CarPlay active into the head-up display. So this is sometimes an issue just because the systems do not talk to each other. And for that reason, some might prefer using the inbuilt navigation system because they want to have also navigation in the head-up display and not only in the center stack display. But definitely in terms of the way you operate the in-car HMI, they definitely shape expectations and as sort of a benchmark, I would say. So to follow up on that, obviously Apple is well known for the depth of user research that they do, right? They're really known for excellence in UX you know, the people who they've had, you know, come through there in the design and UX capacity are really well known. So obviously we have that, like they're well known for that. But one of the things that I often think about when I think about what people like yourself who are in industry, you know, as an academic, you know, I have more leeway to basically make mistakes, right? Because they're not, you know, I'm developing prototypes and and things like that that are much smaller scale, they're not going to be 100,000 people using the prototypes that we basically design, things like that. So the stakes are a whole lot lower for me than they are for what you're doing, obviously. So, But even in terms of the type of uh, user research we do and the UX work that we're doing, there are a number of challenges that we encounter to basically try to execute and to try to learn, understand user needs, and to try to design and to try to prototype. What are some of the challenges that you've encountered? Because you've had a really long career in the automotive industry. So what type of uh, challenges have you encountered when conducting user research, specifically focused on automotive? Yeah, so if you compare companies, so the big tech companies with big automotive companies, there are major differences. And this is speed of development. So if you look at the time frame which cars are developed, this is so when the systems are on the market, they're already two to three years old or something. So the iterations that were done, at least in the past, are less. And the, the automotive industry has to keep up with the development speed in the tech companies and also is struggling with that from time to time. And this is also the major challenge here that we get into an agile way of development with rapid prototyping, testing often, and then iterating the systems, let's say also failing then to the best system that we can develop. And the industry still struggles with this approach, I think, a lot. It's absolutely, the development processes are way too waterfall-like and not agile enough. So there's a really, that's from my point of view, a challenge because this way of agile and quick prototyping, quick testing and iter quick iterations is still not really incorporated, I think, in big automotive development processes. So that's really interesting. So we're heavy users of Scrum at my lab. So we're, and just for our listeners who aren't familiar, uh, Scrum is basically just a flavor of Agile. 
you know, basically developing and doing work in small batches or iterations. We're huge followers of uh, agile practices in my lab, and we use Scrum to really drive what it is we do. So I think it's really interesting when you say that there's a little bit of tension between the way things have been done, which is more of a waterfall or sequential type approach to development in the automotive world versus agile, which is really the approach du jour in most, you know, software, you know, at this point. Can you talk a little bit about um, the tension? Like, are you all, to the degree that you're able to, are you using agile processes really heavily? Are you attempting to use those processes? Are you using like a combination of agile and waterfall? Like, what does that look like just in terms of what you're actually doing? Yeah, I would say it's a combination of agile and waterfall. I mean, in in early prototyping phases, of course, we can work in an agile way, not not strictly, you know, with we do not do not have really scrum masters and all the roles that you need for a, a really a scrum process. But of course, we can iterate and test quite heavily. But then, the more it comes to the final development processes, and when the requirements are more or less fixed, there are so many interdependencies. In the car development process, it's much more complex than any app or other system. Maybe only a nuclear power plant would be more complex. So at a certain point in time, of course, changes are getting super expensive. And then, of course, you have to just sequentially roll out what was defined in a certain requirement process. So I would say in the beginning, it's more agile. And the more it comes to the final start of production, then it's more sequential. Now, do you see that as a trend across, you know, automotive, across OEMs, across automotive companies broadly, this movement towards agile? You know, is this something that you think many manufacturers are kind of struggling with in terms of trying to incorporate agile processes into their development, just given the length of time it takes to actually develop a vehicle? Yeah, I think, I mean, I can only talk about the companies I worked in, but I think everybody is trying to become more agile and yeah but the problems are the same i think more or less for all oems as i said development lead time and interdependencies between different systems is super complex and yeah contradicts sometimes maybe maybe an agile uh, way of working so i wanted to talk about a couple of the just a, a little bit of a pivot but i think it's still related about some of the vehicles that you have worked on directly that have come out of uh, Lotus. So I'm going to attempt to say this name, but I think it is, it may be French, I'm not sure, but the Lotus, the world's first uh, pure electric hyper SUV. What type of user research contributed to the design and features of that vehicle? Like what actually went into developing that? So, yeah, as I said, when I started um, four years ago here in this company, but actually we really we performed this uh, qualitative research that I just described in the beginning. So we had focus groups, uh, we had user interviews and tried to find out what features are actually of interest uh, for our uh, customer groups. This was done in Europe, in China as well. And then also we talked about, we also often talk internally to other groups here in the engineering center, like for example, the guys from vehicle dynamics, because 
Um, Lotus has a big heritage for sports cars, of course, and the future customers would also expect some sports cars related feature in the HMI. And then, yeah, we discussed here with our colleagues what would be of interest for a user who would take the car to a track, to a racetrack maybe even. And then we develop one feature, which we call a track mode. So um, this shows certain features in the HNI that you would not normally have in the SUV, which you would only use for a daily commuter or something like that. So uh, you can record your lap time there. If you're on a track, you can see the health state of certain components like the battery or tire related informations and things like that. So with, this was a dedicated uh, feature which is built inside the car that you would not, not have in other SUVs, which is then related uh, to the expectations of our customers coming from mostly also previous other Lotus makes and models. Yeah, and this racing heritage. Interesting. No, I can really see that. So related to that question is what we see now, at least here in the uh, States, and I think this is probably true globally as well, a couple of the big things that we're seeing in terms of uh, automotive design and really changing automotive design and the way vehicles are really thought about are electrification. So the increase in electrification, electric vehicles, and then automation, right? So whether we have technologies that uh, partially automate the driving experience, highly automate the driving experience. So things like General Motors Super Cruise that allows the vehicle or that allows the driver to basically go hands off the uh, steering wheel, which they've advertised really heavily in the United States. What are the rise of electrification or automation really changed the way you're doing user research at all? Has it created any additional complexities? Like what is the current approach to really trying to understand what the user's needs are, what features need to be introduced with this electrification or automation that's being introduced into the vehicle? Of course, I mean, if you drive an electric vehicle, you need to calculate especially longer routes completely differently because you would need to stop more often maybe to charge and you would have a bit more time to actually recharge your vehicle so it's not that you drive like i don't know 500 miles or something five minutes fill up the gas tank and then move on you would maybe drive 250 then take a half an hour break, walk the dog <laughs> or do whatever with your time, then while the vehicle uh, charges. So the route calculation and also offering stopovers uh, to recharge the vehicle is something we definitely need to take into consideration, for example, for navigation systems. Also, range anxiety plays a certain role still. So people are very concerned about if they can reach their destination, especially for longer trips. And we, then we have to offer a way to uh, tell them exactly which destination they would reach and what the a charging state is and stuff like that. So there are some implications in the HMO, definitely. Even more so for automation, because if you think of automation, I think from my point of view, there very often there is a misconception. So people would think, okay, like if you drive a train or like if you travel by plane or something like that, you would sit in the car, press a button, and then the magic happens and you are driven from A to B and then you are you stop, you're there. But this is not the way automation works, at least today and in the near future. 
the way it works is you would sit in the car, you would maybe start driving manually, then you would hand over the driving task to the vehicle, drive in automation mode for a certain amount of time. In reality, maybe a rather short time, then maybe a certain situation occurs. You would then retake the driving task, drive manually again. So we know from researchers that there are, at least today and in the near future, that are a lot of handover and takeover situations. So it's a, still a cooperation between uh, manual driving and partially automated driving. So I think there is still some time to go until we can really sit into a car, push a button, or not even that, and then are driven from A to B in fully autonomous mode. And this transition, this this has a lot of impact for the HMI because you have to bring the driver back in the loop, as we say. So he has to be aware that he might need to take over in a certain amount of time, five to 10 seconds usually. And there is a lot of communication needed between driver and vehicle HMI then. No, that's really interesting. And I think the way you described that was really spot on. Because I think in a lot of the discussions that we have, that is a a big misconception, what you just described. When I talk to people a lot of times, you know, and I'm just explaining that, hey, you know, we're trying to design these, these systems to basically support user needs. And one of the big questions I get is, well, isn't it just like an elevator where I just press a button and it just takes where I go and then I get off? Right. And then I have to explain, well, you know, somewhat, but not really. The driving activity is fundamentally different than like you're not, you know, they're not other elevators in space that might collide into you or, you know, things like that. So really interesting. I really like the way you put that. So in terms of uh, so we talked about electrification automation. Do you see any other trends in the industry, whether they are technological advances, changes in consumer preferences, or really other factors that might have an implication in terms of like your day-to-day work moving forward? Yeah, I mean, of course, we think a lot about uh, how we can incorporate everything which has to do with artificial intelligence, like virtual assistants and things like that. Now with having the opportunity to also use off-board systems in cloud, for example, there are much more opportunities for natural voice interaction, for example. I mean, in the beginning, when voice interaction was introduced, the user had to adapt to the system because usually you had to know some commands that you could say that the system would understand. Nowadays, there's more natural language understanding available. And with the processing power in the cloud, we can also use this inside the vehicles to yeah, allow users to interact with their cars like they would with their systems at home just by talking or saying what they want like or even just stating i'm cold and then the car knows okay i raise the temperature for a certain amount of degrees or something like that and also virtual assistants like so this would be then the next step beyond natural language understanding that you really have something like an assistant could just tell your needs And then you would get AI-supported result for whatever problem you might have, like hotel reservation, I don't know, stuff like that. No, that makes perfect sense. So you've had a really impressive career in automotive, right? So one of the big things that we get asked quite frequently, or at least I get asked, being a faculty member here on an automotive engineering campus in a school of computing is, and I get asked this from many students, how do you 
get to the point to where you are appropriately educated and have the appropriate amount of experience for the types of positions that you have had up to this point. So we have students who approach Automotive UX from a psychology background, so human factor psychologists. We have some who approach it from a computing background, maybe human-centered computing, which is what I've done. You have some who approach from an automotive engineering background, so they come from automotive engineering. What advice would you give to a student to help them basically prepare for the type of career that you've had, both in terms of experiences that might be appropriate and might be helpful and education that might be helpful? Yeah, you mentioned the different approaches. So interdisciplinarity, this is really the, the crucial part for, from my point of view. So if you're a psychologist, then talk to your engineering colleagues, try to understand how they think. If you are an engineer, talk to uh, the, the, the psychologists and try to understand how they think. So in the team here, we also we have all the, the disciplines you mentioned, like computer science, psychology, and engineers. And this interdisciplinary approach, this is exactly, this was always for me the fascinating um, aspect of this way of working. And believe it or not, there sometimes it's really hard or interesting to understand what actually the other disciplines or how other disciplines would approach a certain task and yeah, try to learn from people outside your own bubble. That would, would be my advice and work on as many projects you can actually work. Try things out. That's also important. And then if you have an, a job interview or something, then you can talk about your experience you had with some maybe side projects in school or maybe outside school, even maybe outside automotive. I mean, if you have the methods are comparable research methods that we use and that are used in other industries, but the experience working on projects, that's really the crucial point from my point of view. Yeah, thank you for that. I think that's, I also encourage a lot of project-based work, you know, doing small projects to get experience. You know, I think there's a lot of uh, learning that can occur in working on those types of projects. Definitely. Yeah. So as we wrap up, there's one question I always like to conclude with. Who in the world of automotive UX or design would you most like to take to lunch? Yeah, I think I would not even go for automotive UX, but for the UX gurus in the field, like, you know, Don Norman would be something I would really like to have lunch with. So I would pick Don Norman. <laughs> Don Norman, that's an excellent choice. I would also have lunch with uh, Don. I would also like that. So once again, I want to thank you for agreeing to be on Designing for Movement. I really appreciate it. Those are all the questions we have. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat, and I hope you have a great day. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Julian. It was really a pleasure talking to you. Wonderful. Well, you have a great day. That's all for today's episode for the UX for Mobility podcast. Remember to subscribe to our podcast to stay up to date on the latest episodes, and feel free to leave us a review to let us know what you think. And a special thanks to our guests for sharing their expertise with us and to our listeners for tuning in. Join me again next time for more exciting discussions on designing for movement, the UX for Mobility podcast.